Father, thank you for your gospel. Um, love this moment, this moment of dependence on you where really uh, I take uh, all my worries about the sermon, I take all my uh, perfection tendencies and all that stuff, um, and I realize that in the end it's a, it's a pretty futile effort to, to proclaim Christ without power. So in this moment, Lord, I pray you would intervene. And as we think about you, we would respond by faith. And we would perceive and apprehend good things about you. And those good things would be transformative in their power. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, I think that you probably already sense from the things I've said in the service here that we are a group of struggling people. We are uh, trying to not be ashamed of our struggle. We are trying to not put an emphasis upon um, our obedience and what we are doing. Uh, we are trying to put an emphasis upon how beautiful God is in the gospel. So it's a constant work to try and keep the gospel central in the life of a church. Very interesting. It's very. It's not. It's not all that easy. Uh, and there's a the big question. It's really what we're sort of answering in this series is how do you motivate Christians, or what's the right way to motivate Christians? And there's options out there that are, I would say, are not biblical. Uh, there's shame. There's guilt, um, and uh, there's some other pretty skewed approaches. Um, I don't think the apostles moved into the New Testament Roman world out of a great sense of shame, okay, or a great sense of guilt. We ought to, we ought to be just, you ought to be good disciples. So now do this, right? So it intrigues me the whole idea of how do you motivate Christians, right? And I, I want to share with you that as a pastor, I can put pressure on you. <laughs> I can do this. I can put pressure on your heart. What pressure? Well, I wouldn't want to disappoint Pastor Todd. Well, he, he says this book's everything. I should buy it. Or it you know, in other words, you do, you do things because I tell you to, or you don't want to disappoint me, or you just feel sort of like this new obligation to behave a certain way. Well, a couple of weeks later, that all just runs out of gas, and you're sort of back to yourself. So what we're trying to figure out is, the preacher does his job, that's great, but what about my Monday morning? What about in the here and now of my life, what's happening in my heart as I interact with my circumstances and in my life? What's happening? So Christians typically are pretty good with the past about what God has done for them. When I was 18 years old, I believed in Jesus. You know, we're pretty, we're pretty sure, pretty sure about what happened back then. And then when we're pressed, we think about the future. We, yeah, we're pretty good about that too. If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? Yeah, I would. And why would you go to heaven? Well, because Jesus loved me and gave His life for me. Oh, great. So that's a future orientation. So those two areas are not—they can be struggles, but the bigger struggle is the here and now. So in the here and now, Christians have a kind of gospel amnesia. This means that 
they can't really relate the cross and Jesus to their present moment. This is true for pastors. This is true for preachers. But something else has come in and has replaced the gospel. Now, we have to have a lot of real honesty when we explore this to say, you know, I think that's true of me. And that to the extent that you can say it's true, it's actually the extent that you are going to begin to tap into God's power. So it's not in strength, it's not in Christian performance that we find the power to change. It's actually in a discovery of weakness. And then at that point, Christ becomes everything for us, and we are interacting with, with the power of God to change us. So let me ask a broad question, a sort of big question, and it really boils down to so much of our life, and this is the question. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want out of life? What are your life energies devoted to? What are you pursuing? What are your efforts chasing? What are you laboring after? Think about that. What? And it would be great to just sort of be honest with yourself. I don't know if it can happen just on this moment, but just take some time or reflection this week. Write it down. What, what do you want out of life? And I would propose to you that as you formulate a sentence, uh, it will probably start with, I want, and then at that point, there's going to be a, a fork in the, in the thought road. Here it is. I want, and it's either going to be something according to your agenda, or there's going to be an insertion of God's agenda. At that point, I want, right? And I think that's the struggle of the Christian life. And I want to assure you, um, we are actively opposing, I want you to know this, we are actively opposing simplistic views of sanctification. What do I mean by that? I mean that it is not a three-step process to really getting your act together. That the more you explore your heart, the more idols are discovered, the more, the more entrenched agendas are discovered, and the, the more you, there's plenty to work on in the Christian life. And a simplistic view of sanctification is not going to cut it. This doesn't mean that a person cannot, uh, perhaps a, a crisis in their life, a weekend retreat, or something that works where it's a catalyst for change. I'm, I'm into that. That's great. But in the book of Colossians, we have this remarkable statement to Christians who ha are not fully sanctified. They have a need. And the need for them is to remember what it was like to first enter into this walk with Jesus. And Paul puts it this way, Colossians 2.6, beautiful, beautiful passage, really a parallel passage to Galatians 2.20. Beautiful passage that goes like this. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now Christians needed, they needed in time, the Colossians, needed that instruction. 
think about just the implications of that question. Peter, in his second epistle, observed that Christians are forgetful of having been cleansed from their former sins. 2 Peter 1, 9. As Peter interacted with Christians, he observed one thing. The expected fruit of faith was not being produced, and he located the problem. The problem is they were experiencing gospel amnesia, and they had forgotten their new identity in Christ. They had been forgiven of their sins, and they were not living out of that truth. The Apostle Paul here is now applying the same idea to the Colossians, and he's saying to them, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, now what was that like? Well, um, that was like a desperate moment. That was a moment of repentance. Oh, I see why I need a Savior. And faith. I'm now expressing faith in this Savior. So as I receive Christ Jesus the Lord, I am now to walk that way. It is repentance and faith. The left foot of the Christian life is repentance, and the right foot is faith. And this is how we walk through our day, repentance and faith. And as we do this, we will experience and make progress in the transformative change that God intends for us. So we want to avoid simplistic views of sanctification. We want to focus on Colossians 2, 6 as a means of, of the change process. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. I don't know if you know this, but um, I take a lot of pride in my sermons. You know that. And uh, some of you say, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> the way you preach, really? <laughs> uh, so, uh, <clears throat> and, you know, it's a funny thing. Uh, it's a funny thing to, to, to preach, and, and uh, I, I want to be clear here. Um, what is this supposed to do for me? You think about it. Is this, what, am, what is this supposed to work? How is this supposed to work for me, what I'm doing right now? Um, and why would I want to be perfect in what I'm doing right now? Why would I want to be perfect in this? You see? You know what's underneath there? There's an ugly idol underneath there. It's human approval. Okay? And you're really that actually disqualifies a pastor from being a pastor. Did you know that? Did you know that? Like, to really live in the fear of people, like, oh, uh, yeah, you should be a plumber. <laughs> you should do something else. Sorry, plumbers. I mean, just, you know, you should do something else. Because at the core of what this is, this is a, a, an experience of, of removing yourself from the process as, the, as best you can. This is not about you and your esteem or, you, or, or you, you even being loved. Jesus does that for you, so get over it. So I have idols in my heart. Now, what happens in the Christian life? It looks like this. We did some remodeling in our house this last year, and we put in a, a skylight in, in a hallway. Now, this hallway was always dark, always dark. And uh, if you, so the skylight 
uh, brought in an amazing amount of light, and we're, we're, it's amazing. And now we're like, except we're seeing the hallway for the first time. <laughs> you know, it's like, and we have these uh, redwood walls, right? We don't have drywall, we have these exposed wood walls. And uh, so <laughs> I'm now seeing these walls in a new way. And you know, in these walls, and I had lived, we had lived in this house for many years, I had never seen these walls with the sunlight now hitting them. Do you know there was graffiti on the walls? <laughs> Do you know there was comments about one brother, about another brother, and uh, there was a, a phone number written out because there, there was, actually there was where a phone used to be, and so someone took a pencil and actually wrote on the wall. Now, I, I thought about calling these people, you know. <laughs> so how are you? Um, and, and then there's... I do not know if there's siblings, you know, they had, uh, you know, pro wrestling in the hallway. There were, there are chunks out of, there's, and I look carefully, what happened in this hallway? There's chunks in the walls and, you know, all this stuff. The light, see, the light revealed that. And that's, of course, that's the Christian life, is that the more light is shed upon your life, the more you'll discover. Now, what we want in the church is for us to not be self-righteous and be all shocked at the light that's revealed. We are all just discovering the sinner that Christ saved. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. So we shouldn't be surprised if sin manifests itself in our marriages, in our church, in our pastor. In other words, not that we take it lightly, but that we're not shocked. We're not self-righteously reacting to it as if we didn't have a dark hallway in our hearts. See? Okay. So what, what this text moves to there, there's a beautiful statement in Colossians 2.6, and it says here about being, look at verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It's a good description of the Christian life. Look at verse 8. See to it, now this is a very big thing, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, it's a difficult text to interpret or understand. But let me just spell it out for you, because this has to do with a warning to Christians. You can be deceived let me insert self-deceived into pursuing something that is not the gospel and it's not according to Christ. So you can be deceived. This is the Christian, uh, Christian world. This is what can happen. So let me just spell this out for modern times. Let's, let, me, let me sort of translate this. If you pursue some other philosophy of living you pursue it because you want to feel okay. You'll be pursuing even right things, good things, but these somehow make you something. These somehow work for you. These somehow bring you power. These somehow bring you relief. These somehow have saving power. These somehow bring happiness and peace. These somehow bring deep meaning to your life. Do not be deceived by a, an approach to living that replaces the gospel. Okay? So 
We're talking today for a moment about gospel counterfeits that take us captive. Now, um, I want to emphasize something, that um, there are good things that we pursue for our lives and for our children that morph into whole philosophies of living that are uh, antithetical to the gospel. Good things that morph. Now, let me, I want to illustrate this. Uh, our daughter, Amaris, who's a junior at Covenant College, several years ago, um, she applied to have a scholarship to go to college. Now, scholarships are good. Scholarships are good. That uh, helps on the checkbook at home, right? So I really got into her high school years. I was sort of her Uber driver, you know, and uh, I didn't get paid much. But uh, so, and so I, I was driving her around, Marianne's driving around, and we really enjoyed her, her high school years. She went to Trinity Christian School here, our, our, our school with our church here. And so we enjoyed that, and she applied for um, a big scholarship at, at Covenant College. And... Um, it was interesting to watch my own interaction with this. Um, you can take the world of academics. Let me just illustrate this, okay? Yeah. Wouldn't it be a thrill to have, and maybe some of you are Harvard graduates here, wouldn't it be a thrill to have your child go to Harvard, right? I mean, my goodness, that's a top-tier, you know, Ivy League, you know, that just is, wow, that's impressive, right? So... Can you see how, in a Christian home, academic pursuits function as a replacement for the gospel? They function as a way of having saving power for your child. You want them to have a good life. You want them to, uh, you want them to have good things, right? In the... Uh, and we were blessed uh, that she did get a scholarship, and it was great. But it's interesting, for now, in my life, and this is a couple years ago, I thought all about that scholarship. And you know what, now? I don't think anything about it at all. It doesn't have any saving power toward me. <laughs> but what we're asking in this series is, you know what, take a look carefully at what you are saying about your pursuits what are you saying that could possibly diminish the focus upon Christ as your Redeemer? Why didn't I pause and shepherd my own heart and shepherd our daughter's heart in that whole process? She seemed to have a faith-directed understanding of things better than her father. And why didn't I pause to say, you know, Lord, um, I want my agenda here. I want this scholarship to have saving meaning for my life. I want this letter in the mail from the scholarship committee more than what I read in Scripture. You see, we're asking what grips our hearts. And the Apostle Paul is looking at the Colossians, and he is aware they have departed into some pretty esoteric ideas about God and the universe and Jesus. They are being held captive. So in all honesty, we would then say, 
in order for the change process to be underway in our hearts, we would say, Lord, catch my heart. Catch me before I grip something with, with such tenacity that it becomes an idol. Renew me and make your purposes grand for me. This is the key. It is that we become myopic in what we believe that we need and we lose sight of the great, grand work of God for us. There is a work of God for me that is better than anything an academic institution could say about our daughter. I have tried, O Lord, to control her future, to center our lives on this moment, and I have turned away from your better plan to grow us in holiness. Lord, help us receive from your hand whatever would come, because your plans are good. You see, what is going on here is that we are seeking to, to no longer be enslaved. That's a key word. Now, it's sort of a continuum. We move, here's, here's enslavement, and here's freedom. A continuum is sort of this uh, a line that goes across without any real clear de demarcations, okay, like 1 to 10. So we're moving along in this continuum of enslavement and freedom. And we never fully grasp freedom. And because we're in Jesus, we're never fully enslaved because through Jesus we can be freed from this. So these are, what this is, is that we can then morph into identity-level living and that we find our identity in the academic success of our children. And we have morphed completely away from the process of my identity as a blood-bought son of God who is loved by God, and the processes that underway are going to change me into the image of God. So the scholarship does not have saving power like you, Lord. The scholarship is not my savior. Fixing the problem in your life right now is not your savior. You see how this is very subtle? Some of us may feel like this is like too introspective. But this is where we want to be looking and guarding. Proverbs tells us to guard our hearts, for from the heart flows the wellsprings of life. I have kind of a sad story to share, and I want to share it. We have a very talented musician at the piano, and um, it reminds me of a story of a church that I served in Michigan. And this church had a, an amazing, uh, it was a 3,000-member church. Um, they had a musician, a piano player, who was, again, like a, like a Josh Poo, uh, very talented. He had CDs. He had his own sort of side music thing going. He was an amazing piano, piano player. Well, in the church, what happened was there was a group of extended family and friends, and there were about 100 people who were close to this individual. And um, the church went into financial troubles and announced about a year ahead of time 
they could, he was, I think it was like three-quarter time with the church or something. They announced that they could no longer afford this musician. And so when it finally came down to, now this hundred people could have upped their giving, perhaps. It might have been a solution. Uh, so when it came down to the decision with the budget, they actually, after uh, he'd been there many years, they could no longer afford him. Well, did those people live out of their identity in Christ? They promptly left the church. Now, um, they were not living out of the identity and the fullness of Jesus. A particular musical preference, a particular person in the church they had so identified with that they could no longer envision their life in the church without that individual. Functionally, they were not working in the power of the gospel. It is right where we may feel disappointment. It is right where we feel uh, lost. It is right where our world is frustrating and broken. It is right where we can't get what we want. It is right where our agenda isn't working. It is right there where maybe there is a better plan for my life than my Maybe there is a better plan for my life in what God is doing in the big picture of my life. This gospel amnesia affects our behavior. It starts in the heart. And so what Colossians is now presenting to us is a place for our true hope. Colossians is describing that we have received the fullness of Christ. We've been made alive in Jesus. He has set us free. And so what else do we need to fill us up? You see, Christians were filled with the fullness of Jesus before the piano was invented. Wow! Who would have thought that? In other words, there is something marvelous about the power of Jesus that transcends our agendas. This is why you're angry. This is why you're in, intolerant of people. This is why you're impatient. Something in your house, perhaps, is, needs to be so orderly. Something in your relationships needs to be a certain way. Something about your Bible knowledge and the reason why you want to know your Bible better. Something about your discipline and your diligence. Something about your accomplishments. Something about your plans. Something about your morality. Something about your comfort. All of these can be departures and areas of, of captivity. Do you see how rigorous the Christian heart, the attentiveness of the Christian heart, you see? As we were driving to Covenant College that day uh, and getting Amaris there, I should have said periodically, you know, Amaris, You know, you know, in the big picture, this doesn't matter that much, does it? You know what matters is the great work Jesus is doing in our lives. You know what's, what matters is God's agenda. Whether this comes your way or not, it's all working for good. 
You see, let's live in the power of that. Let's live in the freedom of that. Enjoy the weekend. You're going to be interviewed. You may feel pressure. You know what? And you know what? <laughs> she was preaching the gospel more accurately to her heart than I was. This is what. Uh, this is why we're doing this. This uh, this series is that you could. First of all, I want you to know you can share your struggle with me, an elder, small group leader. I want you to know that it's it's okay. I, I've got a hallway with uh, graffiti and chunk marks on the walls. You see, we're just discovering the sinner that Jesus saved, and oh, He wants the fullness of His presence with you. Oh, He desires that you would tap in, in the here and now, with who He is for you in this moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your heart-level work in us. Father, I would confess to you that I can manufacture another way of being saved. My heart is restless, and it is not resting in you, and you must change my heart. Thank you for your remarkable gospel, for your remarkable Savior. Father, thank you for Jesus who is ever-present to help us in our time of need. Empower your church, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.